Hello everyone, welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I have been around cybersecurity for the last 20 years and I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors. My main work is vendor consulting and cybersecurity advisory for companies. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I've been intrigued to learn how a company starts. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Omri from Do Control. Omri, can you please tell me about yourself and the company? Thanks for having me, uh, Evgeny. So uh, my name is Omri Weinberg. As you can hear by my accent and by my name, I'm Israeli. But I moved here to the States nine years ago. Uh, I used to live in New York for seven years. Now I live not far from Miami in the last two years. I'm a father of two little kids, four and a half and uh, six years old. So that keeps me busy. That's another startup that I have. And basically, that's my third startup. We co-founded this one in, in 2020. And we had three co-founders, myself, Adam Yavish, who is based in New York, and Liel Ran, who is based in Israel, who is our CTO, basically. It's great. You know, we have COVID babies and we have COVID startups. I guess you're one of the COVID startups that started during the COVID. This podcast is usually doesn't go very technical, but if you can explain in a minute what the company does, and then we can move to the other topics. Absolutely. I think it's very easy to explain. If you think about a company, doesn't matter of the size of the company, 50 employees, 500 or 5,000. In order for them to run a business, they adopt and they use a lot of SaaS application. Most of you out there know the most critical SaaS application that every organization uses, like SharePoint, OneDrive, Google Drive, Zoom, as we are talking right now, Slack. Those apps basically help you to enable the business, to drive the business productivity, right? But on the same time, they hold a lot of data, critical data, that is very hard for organization and for security people today to understand who has access to that data that's stored in those SaaS applications. Once a company connects to Do Control, we give a very nice overview about all the data sets that you have in all of those SaaS applications. We tell you about their exposure externally, internally, publicly available, what's sensitive, what's not and who has access, what type of employees inside the company, outside the company. And then we have a very easy way to mitigate the risk with remediating the access to those assets. So that's basically what we do. And surprisingly, every company that we are connected to, and we're starting a POV, and then they hopefully they become a client, we discover tons amount of exposed, uh, exposed data that shouldn't be exposed, former employees that they still have access to your data. And it's very interesting and, and a very trendy ecosystem nowadays. As I mentioned before, you guys started during the COVID. So I'm wondering what happened in your head and you already believed in US for some time. Why did you start the company? What was the motivation to that kind of move you towards the company? So I was born into a family business that my father co-founded like 50 years ago. So we were dealing with low tech manufacturers and manufacturing in India, in China, assembly lines in Israel, very different than what we do today. But all the business fundamentals, I had it from being a baby basically, because I was working with my dad and we saw that business. And then I had my second career, started with AAA and then online gambling and then ad tech. And then I had my first startup, digital merchandising. Long story short, I was part of a company that acquired my previous company in 2019. And Adam, my partner, he was working for Google, DLP. And being friends in, in New York in the city, we both discussed about what are the things that we can do together maybe in the future. And Adam expressed his frustration because he was working on AWS Golf Cloud to compete with AWS Golf Cloud. And then the folks in Google came to him and say, hey, Adam, did you remove those permissions from this and this and that? And everything was so tedious and manual. And at that, on the same time, 
I was representing my company in Japan and they shared a bunch of stuff with me and I didn't have the work client on my phone. So I opened it with my Gmail accounts, but I didn't have access to the, those assets. And on the other side, they saw my name, Omri Weinberg, and they said, ah, Omri, we know him. And they just granted me access, but it was granted to my Gmail account and not my corporate account. Then we said, how can it be that in 2020, this is happening? So with that, we started the company, basically. We interviewed like a bunch of CISOs, IT folks, CIOs in New York area, friends, colleagues, whoever you can think of. And then we found out that everybody, let's say, dislike the traditional CASB and DLP. And especially when things are migrating into the cloud, into the SaaS environment, you need to build a new technology that fits 2020 another technology that was built like 10 or 15 years ago. So with that, we started this project that called Do Control, the company. You told my next question about what was the next step and did you interview people? So you told me you did interview people. So I'm going to ask something else. Everybody in the industry on the vendor side complain how hard it is to get a meeting with someone. And you just mentioned that you interviewed a bunch of people and they tell you about the feedback. So tell me about this process. Why people want to talk to you? Why do they want to answer your question? Why do you want to spend time with you? And I'm guessing you not just wanted to ask your opinion, you wanted to make sure they become a customer in the future as well. Correct. So the process started with me and Adam solely, right? And I think by wanting to get an answer, things will not fall from the sky. You need to create a reality. And how do you create a reality? You work hard. You work tedious. It's a hard work. You ask friends, hey, do you know this guy that I can talk to? You reach out to people in LinkedIn. You go to some kind of an event, some meetups. And then you're starting to build like a community around you that you can piggyback on their experience and ask them questions. And I think by not trying to sell them anything, just trying to get their opinion and learn from their experience, I think by default, people want to help other people. Good people want to help other people. I'm not talking about everybody. We have people that don't want to talk to anybody, and that's also okay. I respect those. But I'm a person that if someone wants to hear my advice or my take on something, I'm always going to be available. Because I don't want to talk about karma and those kind of things, but this is the human nature. You want to help people. You, you, you want to make sure that you are giving a good advice. And even if not asking anything in favor, but it will come back to you in a year or two years or 10 years from now when you want to seek their help. So I think it's like a revolving door. So I think we had a, a good ecosystem that we built. We asked a lot of good people. And I think also when we started to formalize it and make it more serious and talking to VCs, by default, they also introduce you to their group of people, right? Their security teams, their people that are working with, like their trusted advisor. And that helped us also sharpening our messaging and, and our product and where we want to take this. And luckily, I can say that from day one, our Northern Star haven't changed at all. Maybe we did like detours in some features or product improvements, but everything that we said on paper from our seed run still exists. So we are marching into the same direction. Not always easy. You see the success moving. You see it over time. So let's talk about VCs. You mentioned that you went to raise money into the VCs. Yeah. Let's talk about this process. How hard was to raise money? What did you learn? And maybe later on, what can you recommend to new people that are watching this or listening to this right now if they want to go and raise money? So that's a good question because me and Adam, we were born here in, in New York City. So we've been living here for like five years back in the then, like in 2020, right? Even more a little bit. 
And we said, okay, so maybe let's start raising money. So we can easily go and start talking to VCs or angels here in the city or in the East Coast or even in the West Coast. But the one thing that is unique to me and Adam or the commonality is we are both Israelis. We both lived and served in the army and we worked in, in Israel before moving to the States. We thought that moving to raising money from Israeli VCs will be much faster and easier for us. Because here in the States, people know us, but it's much easier to connect the dots back in Israel. So we said we mapped 20 top VCs in Israel that we wanted to get a hold of. And basically we started this communication while we were here in New York and we had some dancing with some of them. And then we decided that we need to go to Israel for one week, have 20 meetings, and hopefully to get a term sheet or two so we can start building this company. And that was our strategy. In most cases, from what I know, it's not the best strategy to go for one week and start putting a lot of it because you don't have a lot of time to fix and repair in between the meetings and iterate about things that you want to do. But we took that risk. So we hopped on a plane, me and Adam. We did that. We had one week with Liel, our third co-founder, join us. And basically, if you think about VCs, it's like sales. I've been doing sales for my entire life. And it's all about building a funnel. Who do you want to talk to? And it's a numbers game. You talk to 100. You reach out to 100, 50, 30 will come back to you. Out of those, 20 will set a meeting. Out of those, two, three, maybe, hopefully, will get a term sheet, and then one needs to be closed. Again, you only want to say yes, and then the game starts, basically. It sounds easy on paper. It's very, very difficult. It's very hard. Sleepless night, but that's the game. We had a goal. And luckily, we checked the box and we made it. And then it was seed round. We did the A round and then the B round. But from the get-go, you need to start from somewhere and you need one to say yes to you in order for you to start the company. If I want to start my company today or tomorrow, I know same, just people that are listening to us, what would you recommend to them to do that you learn from your mistakes and you think may help other people? So back in the days when we started, back in the days, not too many years ago, three <laughs> years ago, but it was like in, in the pandemic, in the corona, think about it. Everything was Zoom, people were hesitant, do we need to invest? Also now what's happening? Is it a good time? I think everybody says like best companies are, are co-founded in crisis mode or like in those stages where there's a lot of uncertainty. I don't know to tell you if it's the truth or not. You have smarter people and more experienced people than me to say that. But I think for people that want to start new companies, at the end of the day, you need to make sure that you have a good team surrounding you. It's very hard to do it solo. I think it's very hard to do it with two people. I think three is, is a good format that you have balances and checks because you always have someone that can break the equation because one versus one is like it's 50-50, right? But then you have someone else like a third leg that can decide whether if it's a good route to go, we can give different opinions. And then it's, I think it's a good formula. And I think by reading some statistics, I think most successful companies always had three co-founders. It doesn't mean that you not cannot go solo. It doesn't mean that you cannot be two or even four, but that's what we've seen and working for us. I think you need to make sure that you really believe in what you do and what you solve for, and you need to talk to the market. Having an idea, amazing. I have like 20 or 30 other ideas that I can go find another 30 new startups right now. But it's like taking an idea and to flourish it and to make it a reality, it's a whole different ballgame, right? So make sure that you have a good idea that you really believe in. That's the first thing. Second thing is have a team surrounding you. The third is talk to the market, try to get positive feedback. Because when we raised our seed round, we did get a term sheet, one fell down, we did, we got another term sheet, but the majority, most of the VCs, they said no to us because they say it's not urgent enough, you have other players in the market, 
it's saturated. And since then, like 20 other companies like ours or similar to us was co-founded. So don't take everything the VC says and is a holy thing, but I think do a good market research, believe in the offering and build a good team around you. And just think about it as sales, how you bring your first check. That's it. It's not 100% guaranteed, but I think it's a good start to work with. Let's go deeper on the team perspective. You mentioned there are three of you, right. but you started as two. So how is this dynamic working? We were three from the get-go, but the majority of the work from the for the fundraising was and the iteration here was me and Adam. Leah was always a part of the three from the get-go. We had an agreement from the get-go. Everything was super organized. But because Adam and myself are very go-to-market people, sales people, like biz dev guys, although Adam is a product and a developer by heart, by his soul, but I think he has a lot of good instincts as well because he did his MBA here also, and he was dealing a lot of with business partnerships in his roles. So I think that gave us a good advantage of taking it solo, just me and him, in order to establish everything that we want to do, and then bring the technology aspect to it when there, there is a need for that. But I don't think there's a lot of technology aspect that needs to be injected into the first calls or rounds of VCs, because at the end of the day, they want to understand the market, they want to understand their vision, they want to understand the competition, the TAM, why the different approach should work. Because at the end of the day, it's technology, right? And you have different ways to build the technology. I'm not neglecting, and I'm not saying it's the easy part. Obviously, it, it's a hard thing to build the technology. But if you form a good team around you, I think you can build a good technology and make yourself through. Sometimes very good technologies do not succeed because they don't have the right go-to-market people, or they don't have the right messaging, or they don't know how to penetrate the markets and how to sell and how to build sales processes. But I think having a good triangle with like product, sales, or go-to-market and technology, I think it's a very good formula that really helped us accelerate and touch the market very quickly. You mentioned multiple times that technology can be solved. How do you solve human beings? So you have three people. Each of them may have a different idea on different view. Is there a trick that you learn how to better deal or came to conclusion or to the same page between the partners? You need to have a lot of tolerance. Because different people, and we are Israeli, so every Israeli has two different mindsets. So it's like we're six people. But I think it's you need to have a lot of tolerance. You need to have a lot of respect. You need some time to let go and agree and, and accept and, and trust the other side. Even if you strongly don't believe in it, or even if you think that it's not going to be the right thing. Because if each one will really try to push his own agenda and try to call the shots constantly, it's going to be a blocker at the end of the day. So you, you need to let go in areas that you are you feel less comfortable in and you don't have like data or you don't have the right experience and just to trust the other guy or the other lady or the other partner, basically. I think trust is something which is super, super important and letting go because if you're going to micromanage everything and you're going to be free control constantly, you're going to deal with that 24-7 instead of dealing with other things that sometimes are more important to the business. Thank you. I want to go deeper on the people part. So you got raised money, you have an idea, you have a team. Now you need to hire people. And you mentioned by yourself that everybody has different opinions. How do you decide what type of people to hire? How you decide how to build the company culture? Did you communicate this before? Did you knew what type of people you want to hire? So even for us, for the three co-founders, we have very different mindsets very different ways of working, very different skills, different DNA, different everything. 
because each one builds his own team. Each one cares about his team and his DNA as a unit, right? Obviously, you need to have something which is more holistic. But I think if I'm looking back now in my previous startups that I used to work with or this startup specifically, you are not innocent to mistakes. We've done so many mistakes, unfortunately, but sometimes it's a balance. Do you want to hire someone and have fast execution or do you, have, you want to have the perfect person to the job and move slow? So it, there is always a balance. I think there, there isn't a right formula to say, okay, I want one, two, three, four, five, and then everything would be perfect. Because if you need to hire someone for creative or for product or for sales or whatever, you need people to actually start doing their work, right? And if you're going to wait too much or too long, then you're losing momentum. You're losing things that you've built. So it's always a fine balance that you need to deal with. I think if you ask me specifically, obviously you want to have skills and, and you want to have experience. But I think DNA is the most important thing because sometimes people come to you and say, hey, I have that, I've been with startups before. I know what is a start, does a startup means. But a startup that has five people, 15 people, 50 people, 500 people, it's like very different companies, very different dynamics, very different scale, very different politics, they're very different everything. So you want to make sure that if you hire someone for the task, basically, they have the right experience that matches I don't want to say exactly, but as, as similar as it could be to your company's DNA and stage, that they've done a thing or two in companies that with 20 people, if you are 20 people. And if you are 50, it's very different. Or if you are 70 or 100, also it's very different. So make sure that you have the DNA, you can talk with them, and you have the, the, the same mindset. You talk fast, they talk slow. Friction. <laughs> you like to write, they don't read emails. Friction. You're slacking their eye messaging friction. It's like all of those little things that obviously you can adopt. But if you think about it, you work with Google work, Workspace, they use Outlook. It's not the end of the world, but one friction and another friction and third and four and, three and five and six and seven, suddenly you have 10 frictions, right? And then it's starting to be like, it's not a big snowball, but it's a small snowball that it grows. And eventually it will be hard to work with. So I'm not saying start asking questions about do you use Mac or PC or whatever, but you'll start getting the idea or the sense about who you're dealing with from the other end and if he's a good fit or she is, he is a good fit to your company. I hope it makes sense. Yeah, it is. So let's go and talk about actually applications or tasks because you mentioned different frictions. So when you're growing and you have more people, how do you control tasks? How do you prioritize tasks? So I think what helps us a lot is from the get-go, we were very organized with all of the applications internally that we have about processes like hiring someone or even interviewing someone and then bringing them on board, managing bugs, managing clients, whether if it's in Jira or Monday or other HR platform, it's, make sure that everything is pretty fine, very orchestrated. And I'm a big believer in processes and in order. If you have order and everything is, you have a clean slate, everything is in place and you don't have a lot of things to bother you, I think... It helps you reduce the friction and it helps everything be much faster onboarding processes and so on. So if everything is handy, everything is visible to everybody, you don't need to think much. You don't need to talk too much to other people. You just know where things are. I think it's very easy for everybody to do their job in a much productive and more efficient way. So if you can invest some time before you scale and, and make sure that you have those platforms or even SaaS application or protocols in place that you know exactly what you're going to follow, that's going to help you scale because at the end of the day, things will be repetitive, right? If you're going to start talking to a new prospect, at the end of the day, the procurement 
if it's 5% to the left, 20% to the, it's going to be the same, right? If you're going to do a demo with someone, it's going to be the same. You need, you'll need to have the same materials. If you're going to do an onboarding with a POV, it's going to be the same. Maybe you're going to have some trial and error, but I think if you follow the process and you build a process, I think it really is going to help you scale. And especially when you onboard new people and they need to do fast onboarding and you need to streamline them to the business immediately, that's going to save you a lot of time and efforts in the future. Let's talk about a cold chicken in the egg. You go to customer says, oh my God, I love the product. But if you had this, I'll definitely buy it. So you can yeah. say, yes, I have it. Or no, I don't have it, but I'm going to develop it for you. So just basically different ideas on the approach, this problem. What is your approach to, no, we don't have it. No, we're not going to develop it. Or we have it and go and develop it quickly. Yeah, I think one of the things that we've done from day one, when we started to talk to prospect into the market, we were very proud about our vision and what we are capable of, but what is it we can deliver. When prospect started asking, hey, but I need this, I need that, and can you do that? So we divided it into two. It is part of our roadmap, our vision, yes or no. If it's a no, we had no, we did not illusion anybody, right? We said, we told them, hey, this is not something that we're supporting today, and it's not something that we're going to support in the future. If it's something that really resonated with what we do and it's it seems like a, a natural extension in what we do or this is something that we'll do in the future we told them look if you sign with us we'll be able to deliver that within a quarter three quarters four quarters depending on how big the project is right and eventually obviously if you talk to a few prospects like three four five six and everybody wants the same thing this is where we you start to prioritize what is it you want to do first and also you need to understand maybe it's an easy lift or a hard lift. And then you put the who wants it, quantify it. What's the magnitude, how hard it is to deliver? That's the second thing. And the third thing is, does it align with what is it you want to achieve? And then this is how you start prioritizing and building it. It's a never ending story. It's always hard. There is no magic trick to say, hey, it's easy. There's a lot of discussion to be done. And again, if I go back to your previous question and if you go back to the board and you say, okay, what are the new features? Which customers or prospect wanted it? To give them a priority, one, two, three. Again, once you have this order and you have this backlog, you can easily go back and understand how to prioritize it in a, in a better way. And also if you can put like a price tag into it, that's even better. Because if someone tells you, hey, I want it and I'm willing to pay like 20% extra on your core pricing, okay, you know how, how much it, it's value, right? And then you can start multiplying by different customers or prospects or, or maybe sell it to existing customers. So you need to have a harmony, not just from the prospecting and sales, but also from the client relation to understand how valid it is, what is it you need to prioritize. But I'm not gonna lie, it's a never ending process. It's always hard, but, and someone needs to decide at the end of the day. And sometimes you have, we have a hard conversation about what is that we need to do or don't do. And on one hand, it can win a client. On the other hand, it will make some existing clients unhappy because we push his priority to a different quarter, right? So there's a, you, you need to involve multiple stakeholders in order to make the right decision, product, technology, customer, sales, and so on. Let's talk a bit about sales. You mentioned that you've been in sales for a long time. Now being in sales and being a founder and doing sales is different because right now you're the first salesperson in the company. But in one point, I'm not sure it happened already or not, you need to let go let somebody else to sell you baby. So I'm not sure if you guys are ready, but tell me about this process. Like, how do you let go? How do you let somebody else do, do your job? 
Absolutely. If let's talk a little bit about the, the Israeli ecosystem, right, or the cyber ecosystem. In most cases, if you look at me, I'm an anomaly, right? Because they usually have the the technology guys, the product guys, and then in a later stage, when you have some kind of a product market fit, then you bring like an, uh, a US CRO or VP of Sales to help the CEO run and drive the business. I started to sell the company or to sell our product from day one without having anything, building the relationship, partnerships, you name it. That's my DNA. And I think I'm the guy that I, I like and I know how to create a reality, you know, from nothing. And I think it really helped us expedite what is it we wanted to achieve and the numbers speaks for themselves about our progress and the customer that we were working with. So if it's good or bad, we'll, tell, we'll know at the end of the day, but we feel pretty good about that, about our progress. At the end of the day, I, I cannot hold all of the client calls or prospect calls and pr doing the prospecting and doing the demos and closing a deal. And, it's hard, right? Because when you get to a situation when you need people to bring in, we're talking about scale, to bring people to, to help you move the needle and grow the company. I think that once I felt that this is something that is repeatable, we see that we have multiple customers, different verticals, different company sizes, but they all complain about the same things. We say, okay, we have something, we can scale that. And then we started to bring the people, VP of sales and then sales reps and NSDRs and so on. And I think at the end of the day, if you have the playbooks in place, but what is the value drivers? Who are you selling to? What is your ICP? What markets? What are the pain points that you're selling and you're trying to solve? Once you have all that defined, it's pretty, I don't want to say it's pretty easy, but it's easier to build a scalable sales unit because you know where you're going, what tools you have in the toolkit, what brochures or what messaging do you need to talk to or talk about? And then you need to make it repetitive as much as possible. And at the end of the day, what we do is not rocket science. When we talk to a prospect, they get it right away. 95% of the time, 90, if not 99, they agree with our approach. They agree with our way. They agree with our technology. If they have the right, if it's the right timing or if they have uh, the budget, yes or no, that's a different question. But we've done a good job there. And then you need people to be relentless. They have the grip about not letting go, doing the sales over and over again finding the people, finding the time to talk to those people. And if there are complex deals, obviously I get in and I try to help where I can. Also, there's like the founder title that maybe sometimes helps. I don't know if yes or not, but sometimes it does. But in between managing the company, I'm doing sales constantly. I'm reaching out to people, I'm at shows, I'm on the floor, I'm posting things on LinkedIn, I'm connecting to people in LinkedIn and I'm generating pipe like every other salesperson in the organization. But I have full trust on my team because we have all of those recording apps that recording the call records the calls and I listen to those calls and we have discussions about those calls. Maybe next time you should tell about this. What about you forgot this dimension? And what about this competitor? We do this, we do that. And it's constantly education that we train our people to be better and better about what we sell and how we talk about do control as a whole. Thank you. Honestly, this app that's record everything scared the hell out of me because I don't know who controls them, who has access to them as a SaaS application. So I'll tell you a funny story because we're talking in Zoom right now. And when you think about SaaS security, SaaS application or data access control or whatever, Zoom is not even an app that people think about. They think about SharePoint, Salesforce, GitHub, Slack, but Zoom, we are recording this session and a lot of other companies are recording sessions through Zoom. And it can be a product roadmap discussion. It can be a financial discussion. It can be a board discussion. And then people share those Zooms conversation everywhere. 
publicly available, no passcode, how do you protect that? How do you know who is access? How do you eliminate the access? How do you evoke it from being public or externally to be private only? So that's another offering that we have, but think about the magnitude and how complicated, you know, controlling your data over SaaS is, is becoming. I agree. This is why I record locally and not in cloud. Yeah. <laughs> to make sure there's no such problems, but I hear you. Yeah, but you are a savvy ex uh, user. Think about like a company that has 10,000 employees and it's a finance guy that is just recording. Yeah. Do you think that he knows cloud or locally? They don't. They just want to do their business and, and get it done with. That's the problem. I agree. I agree. If you go back three years ago, would you do anything different? Absolutely. When you, I don't want to say, I don't want to give an example from the war zone, but you know, you're running and you're being hit from and being fired from all over the place. You need to run, you need to move faster. And sometimes you, you make decisions that are not necessarily the right decision, but you need to make them because you need to move the boat, right? You can't stand still. And we learn a lot of things, different things about like the hiring process, some tools that we're using prioritization processes within the company, even like small stuff like team building or how to communicate things. We can have done other things differently. It's like easy to say now because you suffered from it and what are the things that you need to do differently. But obviously there are a lot of things that we can have done differently, most cost efficient, time-wise, a lot of other things. But I think it's that's part of the journey. You, you can't I don't think there is a playbook out there that you can download a book from Amazon and say how to build a startup in 90 days with, and avoid every mistakes that you can possibly avoid. I think if it was an easy formula as that, everybody would, would have startups and would be super, super successful, right? But what you see on the news and what you read and like the only handful of companies that are really make it big time. And you don't hear a lot of stories about all those thousands or tens of thousands of startups that run out of money, they close the business, or because it's it's hard. It's a hard thing to do to build something from scratch with little resources, to fight against giants, to convince the world that you're doing something better, different. It's not easy, but you need to be very passionate and very relentless about that. Let me ask you a different question in, in this case. I'm, I'm wondering if we're going to go there. You mentioned that you guys didn't deviate from the North start and you had the idea all the time. But in one point, you realize, oh my God, I'm actually doing something correctly. You got a big win, big order, something that happened that you clearly know that you're going to the right direction. When you talk to people, when you're fundraising and you talk to people about your ideas, it doesn't cost money. They give you ideas, they give you suggestions, they tell you all different angles, they agree with you, they disagree with you, that's okay. Fast forward. You build a company, you build a technology, you market it, you have prospects, but it's not a non-profit. You want to get money out of it, right? And then the real test is if you ask money for it, will they pay for it? And that's the big aha moment. Because think about the process from a CISO, from an IT person, from information security manager, the guys that we are dealing or the ladies we're dealing with, even though they connected to our platform, that's also a big, it's, it's not an easy thing to do to connect like your environment to their environment, such a small startup, you deal with sensitive stuff, you have the, the keys to the kingdom, but they trust you. And then you show them value. We know, we knew from day one that we show them value because everything that they have today is, is either broken or it's not fitted to the way that they're doing their businesses. But putting that aside, you go and you ask them, okay, we showed you the value. Now you need to pay for it. 
$1,000 a year, $10,000 a year, $100,000 a year, a million. They need to justify the cost. They need to go internally, build pay, work on papers, ask for budgets, get approvals, get signatures, involve legal, procurement. It's an event. It's a big issue. It's a big thing. So I think I did our first deal. I think it was like maybe we started the company in June. I think I sold our first deal to someone for $2,000 a year. That was, I remember exactly where I was. We had nothing. Everything was broken. We had very, you know, think about it. Five, four and a half months after we established even more, we sold 2000 That was amazing. We got a, someone actually is paying for what we were building. But then you say, okay, it's 2000 It cannot even pay the electricity for the office in Israel. And then when we started to grow and I sold our first $25,000 deal and then the $80,000 deal, that's or the multi-year deal for $100,000 or $200,000, then you feel that, okay, there's something in here. Because those companies are very respectable brands out there. They have a mature security team. They know the ecosystem very well. They know all of our competitors or semi-competitors or the, our neighbors in this space, and they still want to work with you. And it's not just that they want to work with you. They are willing to pay a lot of money to work for you and for your technology. So that's a big aha moment. And that's something that is, it's, you know, in, in a startup, you get more bad days or negative things on a day-to-day -day basis than positive. But those positive things have a big magnitude. It's a feeling that it, it's very nice to have. And you don't want to stop because you see that it's rolling out. People are buying what you do and you're working with the top brands out there. And you just want to get there faster and bigger. And it gives you a great motivation to do so. Last question for today. As a founder, you're probably having bad days. Not everything is a good day. We know it's not a walk on the park. What yeah. do you do for yourself to get back on the horse? Meditation, walking, kids, family. I talk to many other friends and founders. Every day is like a roller coaster. Every hour... Or every 10 minutes can be a roller coaster because you're getting bombarded from some different areas, from clients, from prospects, internally, HR issues, finance issues, investors, legal, market, technology barrier, you name it. It's coming to you 360. But again, you always need to remember that you've started something from scratch, from nothing, from inception. You created a new reality. You created a new company. You're providing like dozens of families out there. You are selling in millions of dollars and you have the top bloggers that are working with you. So you're doing something good. So you always need to remember that. And you always like, Nick, I think for me, what helps a lot is I always try to take things into proportion. We both have our background stand with Israel. Obviously, our family and friends and beloved ones and, and close ones are in Israel. And they are going through some very horrifying days and weeks. And so you need to be thankful to what you have. You need to be optimistic. You need to give it the best shot. I always try to give, a, I don't like slogans, I give 2,000%, 500%, I give 100% every day. I try not to miss anything. I try to be very dedicated and devoted to what I do. And I know that it can go either way. We always try to inspire it to build faster, the bigger and the best. But reality is, is not always like that. And you need to be humble with what you do, be very optimistic and have proportion in life. And I think with that equation or with those elements, I think you can really lift you up on a day-to-day -day basis and say, hey, you're doing a good job. Continue doing that. Omri, thank you very much, Taraba. Really a lot of good information. And we were talking before the recordings that I was talking to one of our other friends 
and it took us 40 minutes. Guess what? We've been recording 40 minutes as well. So <laughs> time flew very fast. Very good conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Evgeny. And uh, all the best for everybody. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Be here.